and welcome to the second episode of See Stalking Clearly podcast. I'm Suki Barker, CEO of the Susie Lamptey Trust, and I will be your host again for today. These podcasts have been recorded in recognition of National Stalking Awareness Week, which takes place in April each year to raise awareness of stalking and the stories behind the statistics. Stalking is a devastating crime. It's a pattern of unwanted, repeated, persistent behaviour which is underpinned by fixation and obsession and can have a substantial impact on victims, both physical, psychological and social. Today we are going to be discussing digitally enabled stalking and the implications of technology when it comes to stalking and I've got um, a number of great guests joining me today. Um, Firstly, uh, I'm joined by Cara Bacallis, Principal Lecturer and Programme Lead at the School of Law at Oxford Brookes University. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Uh, Joining her is Richard Hollis, Director of Risk Crew, which is an information security risk management consultancy. Hi, Suki. And Rory Innes, CEO at the Cyber Helpline. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for, for joining me today. So we find ourselves in a unprecedented environment at this time, as most of the globe is under uh, lockdown um, owing to the spread of COVID-19. And we're anticipating that this is likely to lead to an increase in cyber digitally enabled stalking. We know already from our work with victims on the National Stalking Helpline that most stalking cases have um, an online or or cyber element to them. And this can include the use of tracking uh, technology, social networking sites, on dating sites and and, um, on emails, uh, amongst others. Uh, My question first to you, Rory. What are some of your concerns about how this pandemic might impact victims of stalking? Yeah, thanks. I think it's really interesting If you look at the pandemic resulting in a lockdown where you are in your house with your immediate family and maybe going out once a day maximum, I think what's interesting about how that affects stalking cases is it kind of depends who the stalker is. If that stalker is someone in your immediate family or that stalker is your next door neighbour, it might not have a massive impact for you being in lockdown and how that stalking is carried out. Also, I think what's really important to consider is that because of that fixated, obsessive behaviour, there's nothing to say that because we're in lockdown, a stalker is going to change their behaviour. You know, they're already doing something illegal. Are they going to abide by the lockdown um, or are they going to carry out this obsession with stalking? So I think we will definitely see and we are seeing at the Cyber Helpline more online digital activity. Um, But I think, as I said, it depends who that stalker is and whether they are likely to abide by the lockdown um, protocol anyway. Thanks. Thanks, Rory. And and Cara, I wanted to ask the, the same question to you. I guess on one level, maybe people have got more time than they did before. Um, So if you're at home and maybe you're a bit bored, um, you've got lots of time on your hands, maybe it means that the activities will intensify. People just have more time to to, to do this. And I suppose from the point of view of the victim, um, again, maybe your online world becomes ever more important because you can't go out. So... uh, uh, contact with friends, family and so on over social media becomes really, really important. So it becomes even harder to simply just switch off or or not go on Facebook. 
um, if, if, if that's the advice you've been given in order to avoid the stalker. So, Absolutely. Uh, Richard, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with Kara. I think uh, for me, I'm an old, uh, you know, Agatha Christie taught me everything I need to know about crime. Means, means, motive and opportunity. And, you know, the Internet gives you the means. Your motive is personal. But now we've got opportunity. People are have a lot of time on their hands. Uh, I don't know about you, but people have reached out. I'm I'm not on social media, but I've got uh, emails from people in, in university from 20, 25 years ago. Why? Because they're sitting at home thinking of who, who do, you know, I don't, I don't know why, but people have the opportunity. They're in front of a computer with time on their hands. Uh, but also as a secondary, it's a, it's a fact, all, all criminal cyber activity increases exponentially in times of chaos uh, when things aren't normal. Uh, and there's opportunity in chaos. There's opportunity for cyber criminals, uh, whether that's phishing using a coronavirus phishing attempt. Uh, so, but but that's that's tradi- traditional. So, twofold. I see cyber criminal activity soar during any uncertain times, and these certainly are those. And then the means, motive, and opportunity uh, equation uh, certainly plays a role in cyber stalking. Uh, you do things if you have too much time on your hands, then <laughs> then you wouldn't ordinarily do. Uh, some criminals, you know, uh, it is about the opportunity. It's They might be criminally intent, but they don't have the means. Uh, uh, but if you have all those three things line up, those three stars, as it were, line up and you connect means, motive and opportunity, bad things happen. One One other thing, if I can jump in, that concerns me is that if you are experiencing stalking, cyber stalking, the the mental health toll of that can be quite high. And I think one thing that concerns me about the pandemic and the lockdown, if you add the stresses and strains of the lockdown and the fear of loved ones getting coronavirus, that actually it's adding to that mental burden for victims. They've got a lot more to worry about on top of the stalking. So is that pushing people closer to a mental health event essentially and so I think that we can't forget the impact on the victims of all these things going on in their lives. I think it was um, Dr Emma Short who said that there's a real sense of um, omnipresence uh, for victims when they're experiencing stalking that's that's got a, a, a digital cyber element to it um, there's there's no escaping it and it's in every every facet and I, and I think echoing what many of you've just said if you're if you're constantly on that platform, if all, all of us are more um, um, online than usual, um, then does it become more um, more invasive um, than, than usual? I'm, I'm just thinking about any any advice that we might give to victims. Is there anything different that you might be advising them in this particular environment? Um, to, to Richard first. Well, certainly, as I said, cybercrime, criminal activity increases during during these these kind of things like 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 Corona. So you're going to see, be seeing a lot of phishing uh, attacks and and you know uh, uh, attacks that are linked to current events. Uh, so be very very careful of uh, and, and as we talk further, I, I assume about how how people are actively using cyber to stalk. Uh, a lot of it comes down to very, very simply allowing yourself to click on a link or open an attachment that you wouldn't ne- normally use. 
So during these times, as you see, you know, a new, a new notification about Corona, be very, very careful on what you're clicking on more so than ever, uh, because the, these, these, um, uh, these can be, uh, be the vehicle by which somebody's enabling your webcam or, or, uh, or accessing the audio of your, your mobile. Uh, so it's, these are classic, these are classic, uh, what are cyber attacks, uh, but they're used, you'll see a lot of them use the front pages of the newspaper to execute themselves. Thank, thanks, Richard. Cara? Um, in terms of different advice that I would give, given the situation we're in, I, I don't know, and maybe Rory, you've got more experience of this, um, but I'm wondering whether it's a little bit like uh, the A&E departments are experiencing at the moment and GPs where they've actually got fewer people going in, um, possibly because they don't want to burden the NHS or they're worried about catching the virus. I, I don't know whether a similar thing is happening with victims of stalking and them approaching the police. Maybe they feel, I can see Rory uh, nodding, so maybe maybe that, that is happening, but I would guess that people might feel are there more important things in the world at the moment? This isn't so important. I shouldn't be bothering the police. So I would say, do you, you must, um, and, and and don't think that this isn't important because it because it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, Rory, I'd certainly like to hear your thoughts on the cyber helpline on the on the national stalking helpline. It's definitely something that we've we've seen, um, particularly in the period of the, the changeover to to remote working. Um, and, and victims telling us, oh, I wasn't sure what services were still available or what support, not just in terms of the helpline, but more broadly speaking, um, was available. And, and to anybody listening um, at this point, if you do think you are um, a victim of crime or of stalking, then then those support services are available. The National Stalking Helpline is is still open, as as I know um, the Cyber Helpline is. Rory, did you did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it's a great point from Cara. I think just because of this pandemic and lockdown, don't belittle what is happening to you in a very serious, you know, stalking issue. And so still access those emergency services if you need them. And also slightly different from domestic abuse where you might be in locked in the house with your abuser. With stalking, that's less likely. So actually think about still accessing specialist service like the stalking helpline, think about your mental health and, and a lot of those charities and support organisations have moved online. So it's really important that individuals still access those service, services, even if it's in a different, more remote model. And I think for a lot of people who are being cyber stalked or stalked with a digital element, it's quite traumatic being online. But this is a time when you're naturally spending more time online. So think about how you can safeguard being online and have the right security controls in place. Like Richard said, there are different threats during the coronavirus, but also you're going to spend time online. How can you make sure that you have security and privacy while you're doing that and understanding what the stalker might do on a digital platform? We've we've kind of spoken quite a bit around what individuals can do. Is there anything that you might advise any professional agencies, particularly in this environment, to do, to be doing? Uh, to to Rory first. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the cyber helpline is that we operate a hundred percent remote model, and so we are an online organisation providing help and guidance. And so for us, the change hasn't been as dramatic. But I think if you're 
an organisation that is providing that help and guidance, making sure that you have those digital channels for people to contact you and seek help, that, that those channels are secure and that users can trust them and they feel like it's private, um, and also working harder to pick up those subtle things like um, vulnerability or mental health issues, which are harder to pick up online often, um, but you have to make sure you're really focused on those areas because you don't have that physical contact and physical cues. Thank, thanks, Rory. And, and Richard, is there anything, any advice specific to other agencies that you, you might be given in relation to this? Make yourself heard, I think. Um, police departments and, and normal reporting channels are, are, are overwhelmed and you need to, I think, as, as, as Cara said earlier, you know, be direct, uh, be forceful and make yourself heard. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, given the background events, um, you need attention and, and, and maybe need to be a little, little more straightforward about it. Thank you. Thank you all. And, and thank you all for those um, fantastic observations and, and thoughts. I think there's a, a lot for us to be considering in the, in the coming weeks. Um, to begin the conversation, I, I think it might be useful to, to ask about our understanding of the terms stalking, digitally enabled stalking, cyber stalking. Um, in our experience, they're all used quite interchangeably, and this can cause some confusion. And we've already probably been using digital stalking and cyber stalking just in the beginning of this conversation already. For our listeners, I thought it, it might be useful to sort of look at this at, at this stage and unpick some of this. How would you differentiate between some of those? Yeah, and we look at those three different terms for stalking and use them as slightly different flavours of stalking, if that makes sense. So stalking is stalking. The, the definition in terms of the obsessive behaviour and what constitutes stalking remains the same. It's how that stalking is carried out. And so we would use the term stalking around uh, offline, you know, someone turning up at work, someone being outside your house, you know, seeing someone physically a lot. We would use the term cyber enabled when it's a mix of that offline stalking. But we know that online tools are being used to communicate um, with the victim or also their digital world is being used to gather information about that individual like location like their friends to communicate with you know people around that victim we also use the term cyber stalking to mean pure online only cyber stalking so person in america stalking somebody in the uk they've never met physically and it is all um, perpetrated online 100 percent in a online model and so we see different types of stalking behaviors different types of impacts and different responses to those different types of stalking um, depending on which one of those they are essentially thank thanks rory richard would you would you differentiate it in in another way i've been i've been working in cyber stalking or what's considered cyber stalking for about 20 years in the uk 15 20 years now i think i i first got in it and for, for me it's very simple it's it's very simple it's I, I do take a less nuanced uh, view of it than I think Rory does. It's, it's the use of the internet or any technology to stalk or harass somebody. And by that, I mean to gather personal information or to track and monitor their location or their activities. 
And, and I am not, um, I listen, you know, Rory makes a very subtle distinction. Um, uh, and for me, our lives have become so digitized and there is so much information available about our location and our activities that I'm not familiar with any stalking case that, that there hasn't been cyber involved. And, and for me, it's, it's almost like saying, well, how much cyber was involved to gain information about personal details or locations? And that's, that's almost like looking at a crime and saying, how much, how much of the crime was committed with a gun versus a knife versus this? For me, I look at the, at the, you know, at the, 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 the motive, means motive and opportunity, the outcome. And uh, there is so much information about what we do, where we do it, when we do it, uh, that is used by a stalker because of the way we live our lives digitally that I, I don't see the difference. I don't see, it used to be a, a gray line. I don't see it anymore. I, I, uh, our lives have become digitized. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's so available to anybody who's interested in finding it that I, I, uh, the lines crossed as soon as you start to consider, hmm, I wonder if I could track them through their mobile. It's interesting that you should say that because at the Susie Lamplew Trust, we're probably sharing a very similar principle, but um, interpreting it from from the flip perspective. So um, we prefer to to just refer to all stalking as stalking um, rather than um, pull out the the, the cyber stalking that we recognise that there is, as Rory said, some cases that are purely um, online and others that are digitally enabled. Those that are, we would argue additionally enable are actually quite a large proportion as you said Richard for us that's almost 80 percent um and I know in other services it's way over 90 percent and and so following from what you said you could just argue every case has some sort of almost every case has is is digitally enabled in in some respect so for us actually we prefer just to use the term stalking uh, sometimes because what we don't want to do and, and I, I want to talk about this a bit later in terms of impact is minimize um, the experience of victims when they are experiencing stalking that is digitally enabled or has has a cyber element. Um, in fact, um, it, it, it can be just as um, detrimental in terms of impact for the victim um, and, and omnipresent. As I, I said previously, for us, it's 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 about the tools that they're using. It's it's a different set of tools, but the principles, the motivations, the behaviours behind it. Um, uh, are exactly the same. Carl, I just wondered if you wanted to add anything from a, a legal perspective. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, just a few things I want to say. The first thing I want to say is that from a legal point of view, within the Protection from Harassment Act, they obviously don't make any distinction between whether it's there's a cyber element or not a cyber element. However, there is one important difference, however, which is that if it is cyber enabled or cyber stalking, however you want to put it, there are other offences like the Malicious Communications Act and the Communications Act that can be used in addition to the Protection from Harassment Act. And this in itself brings problems. The fact that you have these alternative offences, there is some evidence that that, that the police and the CPS are increasingly using these other offences to deal with harassment cases. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Those offences are, for various reasons, uh, can be seen as being easier to prosecute, which is why they're going down that route. But it can bring problems in terms of recognising really the harm that the victims have been caused. So I think it is something that the law needs to think about. There are a couple of other things that I also think we need to think about in terms of this distinction between cyber offline. Um, one is impact. 
Um, I think it's really important. I think both Richard said this and Suki, you said this, that the impact on victims is can be the same, whether it's offline or online. However, I think we need to do a little bit more research to try to understand whether or not the impact is different. When it's online, they can cause harm in ways that you cannot cause offline. So they can... Um, you know, they can write things about you online that are there forever for anybody to see. You know, whenever you go for a job interview, there will be these things online that are there, you know, written about you. They can really destroy people's lives in a in a in a way that um, is, is harder, perhaps, to do offline. So I think that's something we need to think about. Um, the other thing that we have to think about from a legal perspective is the remedy, um, because if it's um, about offline behaviour or a mixture of offline online, um, then we really need to think about using the criminal law to punish the individual perpetrator. But when we're talking about online, um, actually, we also need to think about what internet companies need to do about this. So thinking about social media companies, but other internet companies that might be hosting uh, whatever it is, that whatever content is, uh, constitutes the, the the stalking if you like uh, online um, so I think from a legal point of view we do need to take this distinction into account actually I do think it is important and I don't think at the moment we're taking that seriously enough and I do think it's something that we need to consider further as lawyers. When you think about the impact in those sorts of cases I mean there's been some research carried out by Dr Emma Schwartz um, from the National Centre of Cyber Stalking and she found that 33% of people who had been cyber-stalked exhibited symptoms that were consistent with PTSD. Um, um, and individuals that had experienced a combination of stalking online and, and physical had significantly higher scores of PTSD. They were like between 50 to 78%. Um, Rory, you, you obviously on the, on the helpline, which offers support to victims. Um, what, what, what are you seeing in terms of that sort of psychological impact? Do those figures resonate with what you're with, with what you're seeing? Yeah, they do, and I think that the online impact or or the impact of online stalking, cyber stalking, cyber enabled stalking, is really really high on victims. You know, so I think that the twenty four seven nature of having technology around you all the time and never really being able to escape. Um, I think you can't you you can't take away the physical impact either because some people will not leave their house because they feel like they're being tracked through their mobile device or through their technology and so it still has an impact on their physical life where they go who they see and one of the other big challenges is that people don't the general public don't understand what is possible with technology. I think what we see is that people develop this fear of technology and technology being a part of their lives. And that can go in some of our cases to a stage of cyber trauma where actually they find it hard to take advice and take help because the simple act of opening a laptop or looking at the settings of their mobile phone is a traumatic experience because of what they've experienced. So it's the impact we see is really high in terms of mental health. I, th I think on the National Stalking Helpline, we certainly um, we certainly see victims who 
who might uh, explain behaviours that we can't um, make sense of, um, and 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 they're happening. And and so I, I understand what you're saying around uh, sort of getting to grips with the realm, the reality of, of of what is possible. We also do see that a lot of this is possible because people are actually just googling it because. Some of it isn't rocket science. It's quite basic. There are basic steps. There are guides, and our perpetrators um, are using them. So, obviously, we don't. This is this is not to to, to create to create fear, but there is something, isn't there, with it in between th- those two realms of what is possible and what what isn't. Yeah, I think, and just to take that, I think that what is technically possible. And what is likely to happen are two very different things. And I think that most of the stalking behaviours we see are not particularly technical. There's no super hacker doing something really new. It is basic pieces of technology and basic tools and basic advice on the internet, which you can use to stalk someone really, really easily. And so knowing that the way you're being stalked is very, very low tech. The problem is when you've been stalked for a long time and you can't explain how certain things has happened, you naturally gravitate towards something high tech going on, some special type of access. And maybe you've had a look and you can't find anything. So it must be something really high tech that nobody else knows about. And what what we've also seen is particularly where it's an ex-partner who's been controlling in the relationship and they've probably in the relationship laid the groundwork for having continued access you know don't worry i'll set up your itunes account for you you know i'll set up your phone for you they know the passwords that actually that groundwork and that level of access gives them ongoing control out of their relationship at a really simple level. So, and, and what those individuals tend to do is when they're talking to their partners, they give some sort of nod that they're somehow connected to intelligence agencies or the police. You know, they've got mates in high places and that adds to the fear that they can't go to the police or they've got someone who's got hacking skills who might be tracking them. So often that seed is planted during the relationship or during the stalking. Cara, can I, can I just bring you um, in, in here? The first point I wanted to touch on was the stalking legislation itself. So we know that there are limitations within the legislation. Um, and, and the stalking legislation deliberately doesn't define specific behaviours. I mean, there is a list. It's not an exhaustive list. And so within that, you know, we would hope that cyber, cyber stalking is being, is being captured. Um, and, and we would always advocate and argue that victims should be prosecuted under, under, under that legislation um, because we fought so hard for the sentencing to be that maximum 10 years and, and understand the, the impact that victims are experiencing. So thinking about that, that framework first is there anything um in addition to that that could um provide victims protection um when they're experiencing stalking in the legal framework there's the malicious communications act and the communications act which can also be used here by the cps um and 
but those don't focus really on the impact on the victim. They focus on the nature of the communication and um, to an extent what the intention is. So it's not really focusing on the harm that's actually occurred to the victim. Um, in any case, those don't really recognise what the Protection and Harassment Act is trying to deal with, which is a certain type of emotional harm that the criminal law, generally speaking, doesn't always find easy to deal with. And that's why the Protection from Harassment Act is seen as a kind of watershed offence, because it it takes the criminal law out of its comfort zone, um, if you like. Um, so again, use, use of the Malicious Communications Act and the Communications Act does, doesn't recognise that uh, because it's focusing on what the, what the perpetrator has done or what they're thinking as opposed to what impact it's had on the victim. It also doesn't really recognise the, the sort of course of conduct element of the Protection from Harassment Act, which is trying to really um, explain that it's the, the, the repetition of this behaviour that's causing the harm, not, 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 not a sort of one-off event. So we know that our perpetrators are using a variety of behaviours across a number of different platforms in ever-creative ways. Um, and it, it, it seems like there are obvious gaps in the law. But could you talk a little bit around that in terms of the development of some of these technologies? What, what are some of the specifics that you're seeing? So I think one big issue is really to do with anonymity. It's the fact that it is so easy for perpetrators to be anonymous. And of course, that then causes problems if you're trying to prove a course of conduct. It can be difficult to link up these different events because, um, because of the anonymity issue. Um, so, I mean, that's a problem elsewhere as well in the law. So I know it's something that... Um, is being considered elsewhere it is difficult because there would be a really obvious way in which you could try to solve this which is to force everybody to have a kind of digital passport so you can't do anything online without using this passport but of course that brings with it privacy issues and um yeah issues we might have with the government being able to have you know to be able to keep close eye on us. So it's always a, a sort of balancing act between um, different competing values here. So I think that's that's part of the problem. It's the fact that we don't, there are so many good things about the internet that we want to preserve, but at the same time, protecting victims might require us to compromise on some of those. Um, and that's, I think, the debate that we're currently having, I think, as a society at the moment. And I think that's ongoing. Uh, and the online harms paper that was published last year is part of that debate. So um, there, there isn't a right answer, if you like. In terms of um, other gaps in relation to the, um, uh, to the legislation and gaps in, in relation to that te technology, I think there's a real issue with the police themselves understanding what it is that perpetrators can achieve. And I, I know I've heard of people who've said, I've been to the police, I've told them X happened to me and they just don't believe me. They don't believe, they don't really understand about the Internet of Things and how it is possible now potentially for a perpetrator to watch you through your, your smart TV. And the police just think you're mad because, you know, how... Of course, that can't happen. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like supernatural or something. Um, so I think a lot of it is also to do with the legislation can be fairly flexible and it can cover it. It doesn't need necessarily changing in relation to the different ways in which 
the offences occur other than anonymity, but I think it's the police really understanding the the the, the you know the real um uh, you know what is exactly possible online. I think there is something interesting in terms of legislation, and you mentioned it earlier about those big internet platforms, because what what I experience is that it's the law enforcement on the ground bit that is incredibly difficult too, because you can offer a service, um, a social media service in the UK from America. And however, you don't, you're outside because you're an American company and the data might be being held in America or the criminal might be in America, actually accessing that data and getting that data in a quick way and how that data is stored and presented back to the police when they need it to understand what's happening. You know, I think there is a big problem there because whenever we deal with a case where the the police are involved and the individual is somewhere else in the world using a platform that is owned by a company in a different country, there's an immediate thought of, we're not going to be able to do this. It's too hard. It's too hard. It's too expensive. It's going to take too much time. And so I think there has to be in future a way to control when a crime is committed for a citizen in the UK, using these platforms that are provided and available in the UK, that data about the criminal at least has to be provided in a timely way and in a much easier process. Um, and I also agree with the point around law enforcement of that engagement point for victims with the police is really tricky because you're kind of expecting members of the public to understand what is a crime and what's not a crime. And it, on the online world, that's difficult for experts, you know, never mind just the per person on the street. Um, so I think that that engagement point is difficult anyway. When do you contact the police? What is a crime? And then if you describe something technical, are you going to get a blank face? Or are you going to get somebody who takes you seriously and investigates? And that's still a really tricky area too. I guess it's going back to the point that, um, that, that Cara, you were making about the legislation and what's the, what's the impact. So we would certainly be um, encouraging criminal justice professionals, police, to be to be looking at the, the, the broader framework, the, the, the stalking legislation itself. Because if a victim's coming to you and talking about specific behaviour, specific motivations, and Richard, going back to your, your point, the, the means, the, mo the motive, the, the opportunity, then actually you should be drawn to that that those that that broader legislation the the uh, the, the stalking legislation and then be thinking these are these are tools that are being used to carry out that that um offense but i, I absolutely agree rory it's I, I do feel that um victims reportedly tell us that as soon as that comes into the language as soon as they start talking about some of that cyber crime there's a there's almost seems to be a bit of a a wall that's immediately um, put up. I, I think though that what we can all agree is that the current situation isn't good enough and so we don't do enough to prevent these crimes and then we don't do enough to help victims when they experience these crimes and in my view if we're going to prevent these things happening the government needs to legislate, the internet companies need to take the law as a 
minimum and take that legislation as a minimum and look at what morally should they have to do because the government has to catch up and okay you can say it's really hard you need international cooperation there's so many geopolitical issues with that i get it but it's not that hard what you need is some legislation you need to take some baby steps and even something really simple like if you're a celebrity, you can have your identity verified on a social media platform and get a little tick beside your name. Why aren't we opening up those schemes to any member of the public, reinforcing how those schemes work, making them better, so that if you meet someone on a dating site, at least you know that social media platform, that dating website, has done some basic identity check to make sure that this is... a uh, 21 year old woman not a 60 year old guy and so I think we just need to take some of those basic steps to improve the big risk areas of the fact you can be anonymous online put some legislation in place and get that improving but then I think we need to understand that just because you have legislation and law doesn't mean the crime goes away so we still need to think about how do we help people when it goes wrong? And that's about services like the Cyber Helpline, like the National Stalking Help, um, Helpline. But it's also about how do these component parts, um, financial, people doing the transactions of scams, how do um, platforms where the stalking is taking place, how do we get those component parts to help in the solution once it goes wrong? Not just say, you can't actually speak to a human being and we can't give you any data, just start a new account. It's like that playground thing, you're being bullied, just stay away from them. It just doesn't work. And so these platforms have to be an active part of the solution in providing data, evidence, trying to help us work out who the criminal is and what risk they might pose to the individual who the crime is being committed against. Mm -hmm. And actually, Rory, you've, you've touched on a, an interesting point there because we often talk about how... It, these technologies are used against victims but how can we use them to help support the criminal justice process um, um, or support in prosecution have, have you had a have you had any thoughts on that yeah that that technology exists right now and so if you look at a lot of the banks right now you log on to online banking they are looking at how quickly you type. They are looking at the digital image of your browser, of your machine, the operating system you've got, and creating a digital profile of you as a user. And does that match previous logins? You know, does that, does this look like the person it's supposed to be? So those tools exist. You know, we're advancing in those detection and response tools all of the time. The question is, even though those technology platforms exist and they could be used to find these individuals who have 20 different Facebook profiles with different names and pictures from the same digital profile, it costs money to put those in. And if you do put them in and you start weeding out accounts, you're essentially telling your investors, we've got less accounts today than we had yesterday. We've got less people clicking on videos of cats than we did yesterday. So therefore, it doesn't work for the business model. I think what we have to do is enforce looking at those, uh, using those technology tools, finding this type of content, spotting these types of individuals at the point of account creation 
and looking at the behaviours they're, um, they're carrying out online and using that detection to say, we think this is a high-risk individual, what do we do about it? Do we block their account until they can prove who they are and what they're doing? Do we warn people interacting with this account that it hasn't been verified and their suspicious activity? So some of those things are going to be liked by technology platforms, some aren't, but the excuse of the technology doesn't exist or it's expensive doesn't hold up. The technology's there and these companies make billions of pounds. It is possible to be better than we are now. There's just no big driver to do it. So Richard, can I ask, what advice would you offer to individuals when it comes to managing this sort of risk? There's basically three things that you do. Is you, 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 whatever, the device that is processing, storing, and transmitting your personal data, you want to optimize the security configuration. Okay, and by that, whether that's a platform you're using like Facebook, you want to read the privacy statement. You want to you want to adjust the privacy settings, or right? you want to maximize that. One, maximize the configuration and privacy settings of the devices that you use. Two is then this general identity discipline: less is more. And then the, finally, the physical control of the device. You know, which is a, a classic. You know, you you lose you lose your uh, as I think Rory brought up. Somebody offers to set the settings on your mobile device. Change your password because what they've just done is given themselves a back door, or they had the opportunity to, which you want to address. So always, once you lose physical control of a device, somebody can change configuration. Yeah, I think in particular with stalking. You know, so we've dealt with a lot of stalking and cyber stalking cases, and a lot of those cases in partnerships with you know, stalking agencies and helplines. And I think that, you know, so we have this cyber stalking action plan, which we follow with our users, but it's kind of a Maslow's hierarchy. Number one, make sure you're safe. You know, so the most important thing is to make sure that you are safe. And if there's an emergency, you've got to phone 999 and get that emergency help. I think the second thing is make sure you've got access to expert help because Stalking is incredibly serious and it can, especially early in a stalking case, it can be really misunderstood how serious it is. And so make sure you're getting that expert advice from a, what's this risk from this type of stalker, but also what what is the risk from what we're seeing online here. And then I think, then what you've got to do is understand what is this stalker doing? You know, what is their MO? What do we think that they are hacking my devices? Are they monitoring my location? And then you have to work through, okay, how am I going to take away that access in a safe manner? Because the last thing you want to do with a cyber stalker is cut off their online access and force them into an offline mode of activity. Can I just jump in there? Sorry, Rory, but just, just on that point around blocking... Because there's a lot of debate in the sector around whether, um, you know, we should be advising victims to block or, or, or not to block. And we think it's quite a nuanced um, debate to be had, actually, because it's not always. It's not always- yeah. And I, I, so I think Richard has provided a really good framework for this because it's all about risk and all about risk tolerance. And so if you look at if you can understand the risk of the overall stocking case, is it a high risk case? Is it a low risk case? If you can look at what is the 
behaviour that the stalker is displaying? Is it already offline and online or is it just online? What are they doing with that level of access? You have to make a decision about blocking in the context of the risk and the safety plan. So if this individual's in a different country, we don't think they've got the means to travel, then blocking their access to your location, probably within your risk tolerance. If you think this person is someone who is physically violent, who lives in the same town, and they're just doing online activity at the moment, you probably want to say, okay, I know I'm compromised here, I'm going to live with that until I'm safe and we can deal with that in the rest of the safety plan. So what, what I don't like to see is when people cut lots of access, they reformat all their devices and then the stocking escalates and becomes more offline. And so I think that you should block eventually because you want to get to the end of the stalking and you want to be able to have privacy and security online again and, and not be under the control of the stalker limiting what you can do but you have to choose the right time and the right level of risk to make those decisions um, and, and the other hard thing I think about blocking is that as Richard also said the nature of the internet and devices is that you are online and they want to connect. And what stalking victims often have to live with is that even though they might get security and privacy in their own immediate environment or within that level of risk that they're comfortable with, there's always going to be that person while they're obsessed and fixated on you, knocking on the outside, sending you emails, you know, trying to send you contact requests, creating fake profiles and trying to connect with you. So it's trying to understand what is my environment I can secure and I can block access to, but how do I learn to deal with that person on the outside trying to get in? And that's where the long-term impact of these cases and the mental health impact of these cases can also be quite high. And there's, an, there's another option, if I could just add. You can go to things like Privacy Heroes. Privacy Heroes has a whole suite of privacy tools for free that you can download to help yourself. So uh, while there's so much uh, information about attacking, there's also so much free information and tools about defending. I think, I think also what's interesting there, though, is that let's say that you know that the stalker has access to your email account and they are reading your emails, they're able to send emails as you, and you come to the cyber helpline, you know you're being stalked, you know your email account is hacked, and we help you kind of understand the evidence of you know, how, how are they in your account and are they actually in your account? And you see that, yes, this person is logged into my email account right now on an iPhone. The immediate reaction of the person being stopped is, let's cut that access off. And actually what we have to do is say, let's not do anything until we understand what the risk is, what our safety plan is, and what this individual might do if they can no longer read your emails. And so it's, it's about understanding when is the right time to take that access away. But that's really hard too. If you're, if you're the victim and you know this person's in your email account, even though you've suspected it for a year, it's really hard not to take that step. And it's making sure, as Richard says, they understand the risk and why you're not taking away that access right now, but you're going to work towards it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, actually. It's also really hard when... Um, when the police are telling you that you should do, uh, uh, you should just block, just cut that contact, just just 
come off that social media site and victims are saying, actually, it helps me to risk manage. Um, I might want to be seeing it, but at least I know what's happening. It actually helps me to risk manage. Um, and so sometimes actually we get the flip of that um, advice coming from our, our, our criminal justice professionals. And collect evidence. It's that's the for, You bring in a guy like me and that's the first thing I ask for. I say, do not connect, disconnect, do not block. Use that and collect evidence. Yeah, I agree 100% on evidence. It drives me insane when someone who's being cyber-stalked has been to their local IT, IT shop and they've said, well, just reformat your computer and start again. And all of that evidence and information is just in a second lost. Mm -hmm. And so that's where getting the right help and understanding that even if that individual doesn't want to go to the police right now, which a lot of cyber-stalking victims don't want to, that at least you have that evidence for if the situation changes um, and you do need to present that evidence. So if you were giving advice to a police colleague, something very simple, and it was two or three pieces of advice to help support a victim who's experiencing something either cyber or digitally enabled, um, what would you advise them? And this is, you know, this is someone who's not technically a, an, an expert. Uh, can I ask Richard first? For me, it's a digital evidence, time and date stamps, uh, you know, uh, IP addresses uh, connected from, connected to, IP servers that were used. All of this, uh, I've done digital uh, and provided evidence in court, and this is what it's. This is what you need to hang your hat on. So, all uh, digital evidence, uh, as long as also supplemented with a, a narrative, a book. Uh, he or she called me again today at uh, 3.57. It lasted six days. Uh, and, and a log of events that can be uh, corresponded to a digital log of events uh, and, and build an evidence body. And then, of course, that's, you know, to, to maintain that evidence body is, is uh, to be able to, for, for that evidence to stand up in court. But the top three things are, are, are time and date stamps, uh, are screenshots, and and uh, uh, IP addresses originating and and uh, connect, uh, connectivity, uh, for whether that's an email or that's a text message or or anything. Just where did it come from? What time did it uh, it get there? And and probably the unsung is a screenshot. A screenshot is just a touch of a button away. That anytime you got a uh, you know something that just appeared on your screen, hit a screenshot and you've got it. And the screenshots are time and date stamped, and those are very very powerful and and stand up in a court of law. Thanks, Richard. Rory, is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I think my three would probably be, first of all, trust but verify. So what one of the issues we see is just people not being believed at the point of communicating the stalking. And some of that is because that person's in an emotional state, they're hypervigilant, the story isn't always coherent because so much has happened, they're trying to get this message across. I think you have just got to start from a position that this is real. This person is being cyber-stalked. I trust what they're saying, and I'm going to investigate and verify whether this stuff is right or not. So so believe them, because yeah. some cyber-stalking stories sound crazy mm -hmm. at the start, and that's just the way it is. Um, I think seek expert help. I think the police need to do their own work and they need to follow their own process, but they need to understand the National Stalking Helpline is there, that the Cyber Helpline is there, that lots of other agencies are there, and get an expert opinion on risk and what should be done in that case before making any decisions that might affect safety. Um, I think my third message would be speed. And speed of 
response to communication to the victims and reassuring them and acting quickly, speed of investigating, speed of getting that help, because these cases impact victims heavily and the risk can be extremely high. So we just need to quicken that process. Absolutely. Thanks, Rory. And Cara, from um, a legal framework perspective, a legislative perspective, what would you be advising those those frontline professionals? I think if it's really simple to support victims. Okay. Uh, I suppose I'll just focus on two things. One is, um, if we're talking about the police here rather than Parliament, who might need to think about seriously about the uh, Malicious Communications Act, the Communications Act, I would say in terms of the police, they really need to uh, think about the what the victim themselves have experienced rather than always thinking about well can we get you know what's the easiest way we can get a conviction actually how can I support the victim to make sure that they feel that they have got justice it's not just about can I succeed but also can the victim themselves feel that they have been given justice uh I suppose the other the only other thing I mean I can't match Richard and Rory have given absolutely excellent advice here to victims and I think it's so great that you know, there are ways in which victims can feel empowered that they can, you know, defend themselves. I suppose I suppose as a criminal lawyer and who's interested in criminology more generally, there's always that fine line between giving advice to victims about how they can protect themselves and victim blaming. And we have to remember that, you know, there are people who, by virtue of who they are, female, probably young, um, maybe some physical characteristics make a difference, mean that they are more likely to be victims of this and they mustn't feel that it's their fault that you know there is so much you can do to defend yourself obviously but certain people are always going to be uh, targeted more than others and we must remember that absolutely thank you and and i would agree that's really helpful advice from 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 everyone there i think from from our perspective at the, at the trust and the national stalking helpline just to echo what rory was saying uh, it's very much about um, trying to, if you can, access specialist support so that those those specialist risk assessments can be done. That that is, that is not um, individual's responsibility. I, I absolutely agree with what you said there, Rory. Trust your instincts, and if something isn't right, come forward. But let those let, let professionals um, take that responsibility and help assess and, and manage um, that risk. And and just to add to something that Richard was saying around that that book, that log, absolutely pivotal in. in we find that's just fundamental in, in helping to support um, prosecuting stalking cases. But to, to add to that date, time stamp, evidence collection is the impact. Um, what is that impact um, of, of those behaviours, of the offline and the online behaviours collectively? Because it's, as you said, Cara, it's, that's quite the, the crucial crux of the, of the legislation. And that's, that's the difference um, between that and other types of um, of, of legislation that uh, relates to online crimes is this, this the stalking legislation really understands the motivations of their behaviour and therefore the, the impact on the victim and so to demonstrate that in that log would be uh, would be really beneficial if 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 you're feeling stalked um, and and you can do that then we would encourage you to do so. The last the last thing I really wanted to ask all I guess to think about was um, it seems like a, a common theme that's coming through is there's there's a lack of a lack of really appreciation understanding at an institutional level around what's what's happening here and the lack of responsibility that's being being, being taken um, if there was one statement that you 
could make about any of the issues that we've spoken today about ensuring that this gets to the top of the agenda, what would it be and who would you address it to? You know, this is such a personal thing and it's, and it's, it's, it's a frustration. It's a professional frustration of mine that you know, I, I work in cyber. I've been doing this for 30 years and, and people don't understand people. Whenever the, the term cyber used, people see ones and zeros, but this is not ones and zeros. This is data about people's lives. You know, a mother, a sister, a brother, a father, somebody's grandmother. Uh, this is data about people's lives. And and sometimes maybe we do ourselves a disservice when we use the term cyber because we bring in these ones and zeros and these computerized images that 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 don't in any way, shape, or form indicate what the, you know the nature of this data of this personal data. And it's very this is very personal. I'm I'm going right to the top of my statement here. Um, so we released the you know the national cybersecurity strategy in 2016. The UK government did. And I think that that strategy is what defines what the UK government does in terms of funding, in terms of resources across the police and lots of other areas. There is one sentence in that 80 page document, which the nationalist strategy, which says individuals must take personal responsibility for their own cybersecurity. It doesn't mention individuals anywhere else how we're going to help businesses, how we're going to protect government. It basically says we're going to do all this stuff for business, we're going to do all this stuff for government, but individuals, you're on your own. Look after your own cybersecurity. That is not good enough. You know, we need to prevent cyber criminals targeting individuals. We need to do much, much more when they become a victim of a cybercrime. And stalking is a great place to start because the impact of stalking is high. The length of time that stalking cases can go on for is a very long time. And the opportunities for intervention and evidence gathering are also high. And so let's think about individuals more. Let's have a strategy that looks at the general public and frees up investment and resource to focus on those problems even though it's hard, that must be the primary focus. Thank you, Rory and Cara. I'm glad I got to go last, although I can't really add anything to what Rory and Richard have said. I think they've That's both said why it I wanted to go really last. well. No, but I think you both said it. You know, I don't think there's anything really I can add. Um, just to echo what you've said, this is about human beings' lives and, and how they experience life. And we 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 can't ignore that we've got to take victims seriously we've got to listen to what they're saying and we've got to help them it cannot be um that you know we're we're a society we all have to be there for each other thank you thank you all i mean you've just all been so brilliant i i've gone <laughs> yeah but that the conversation was just great i really do appreciate your time and, and all of your uh wise words and thoughts Thanks very much for the invite. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sugi. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. If any of our listeners have questions based on what has been discussed today, or you want more information about the speakers and the services they provide, please visit the Susie Lampley Trust website. If you believe you may be experiencing stalking, then please get in touch through the Susie Lamplu Trust website, which is susielamplu.org. 
or contact the National Stalking Helpline on 0808 802 0300. Thank you all again for listening. We hope you're checking for our next episode of See Stalking Clearly, where we'll be discussing the impact and trauma that stalking causes. All the episodes will also be made available through the website. Thanks again.